You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This is Father James Scholl, and I'd like to continue our reading of At the Limits of Political Philosophy, and we will today begin on um, the third section of the book, which is called uh, At the Limits of Political Philosophy, after the um, title of the book. Remember, the first section was called um, The Stages of Political Philosophy, then The Grounds of Political Realism, the ones we just finished on death and, and hell and evil. And this chapter uh, is a chapter that consideration, a chapter is called The Death of Christ and the death of Socrates. And it begins with a citation from Samuel Johnson, from a prayer that Samuel Johnson had for Easter Eve on 1757, in which he prayed, Almighty God, Heavenly Father, who desires not the death of a sinner, uh, look down upon with mercy upon me, uh, depraved with vain imaginations and entangled in long habits of sin. Grant me that grace without which I can neither will nor do what is acceptable to thee. Pardon my sins, uh, remove the impediments that hinder my obedience, uh, enable me to shake off sloth, and to redeem the time uh, misspent in idleness and sin by a diligent application of the days yet remaining uh, to the duties which thy uh, providence shall allot me. O God, grant me thy Holy Spirit, that I may repent and amend my life Grant me contrition, grant me resolution for the sake of Jesus Christ, to whose uh, covenant I now implore admission, of the benefits of whose death I implore participation. For his sake, have mercy on me, O God. For his sake, O God, pardon and receive Receive me. Amen. So we begin with a question which is entitled, this subsection which is entitled, From Errors to Questions to Answers. The first two parts of this book on the limits of political philosophy set down the context in which political philosophy arises, its historical settings and the uh, grounds of political realism those naturally perplexing issues of evil punishment and death that are found in every human life and in every human polity. The following two parts um, of the book deal with, not with those darker and unsettling realities of human life, but how these issue uh, into some, way, some sort of higher resolution a resolution that the accurate reflection on these questions seems to have suggested. 
Moreover, it is not merely the more disturbing sides of human life that lead to questions of the uh, uh, contemplative and revelational uh, orders, but likewise those aspects of human life whose reality is not evil. Happiness, virtue, law, and science do not in themselves express an disorder in human nature, but its ordering, its perfecting, perfection, even though these remain realities of a finite, fallible being, but that man remains in his essence. Evil punishment and death challenge every order, to be sure, including those that are in themselves good. But in its own way, virtue must ask what it is itself for, what is virtue for, for its own goodness. We want to know the meaning of the truth uh, we do discover in science and in philosophy. We wonder about our limited but sometimes relatively good polities that we have organized by our laws. Above all, we wonder about our friendships. Although we find these matters discussed in many fields, all of these issues are found in their deepest forms also in political philosophy, in the political philosophers. Yet often they are found there unreflected on or unanalyzed for their more profound implications. Just when the really perplexing issues arise, why friendships at its best must uh, unsettle us, we are left with no further comment. Perhaps no topic more naturally and easily enables us to pass from the history of political philosophy to the natural context of its errors and on to uh, the good but somehow incomplete side of human nature uh, than the uh, classical treatment of the deaths of Socrates and Christ at the hands of the best states of their time. These uh, trials and deaths are twin fonts of, uh, of a claim on truth and universality that seeks to reach uh, the particular depths of each individual and to the right order of each polity. No political philosophy will be finished or adequate that neglects them. By reflecting on them, the path beyond the brilliant errors, reflecting uh, through the tragic side of our uh, nature, will take on a new clarity. The answers that each presents will be possible answers, studied here not so much for themselves, but for the curious way they respond to questions accurately posed first in political philosophy. Next section is called The Two Political Deaths. Nowhere do the questions and tentative answers of uh, 
philosophers meet in a more graphic manner than in the accounts of the trials and death of Socrates and Christ. Nowhere do reason and revelation appear more vividly uh, before each other and before um, the city. Here are graphically illustrated the uh, themes of virtue, uh, friendship, evil, hell, death, happiness, and salvation. Topics we will we will treat in later discussions. The individual deaths of Socrates and Christ in their accounts from Plato and the Gospels have an especially central and fruitful place in the ongoing philosophical reflections on politics. They naturally follow on a discussion of evil and death and uh, mysteriously transform both of them in their very telling. Yet the issues raised by each are intelligible uh, in terms of political philosophy. No exercise in political philosophy is more rewarding than a consideration of these two deaths. But these respective uh, considerations are sobering ones. They reveal uh, something not merely uh, about abstract human nature, but about the characters of ancient Greeks, Jews, and Romans, uh, of their characters, but also about our own hearts. These ancient narratives become disturbingly alive when they are um, uh, again pondered by the student, by the potential philosopher, or by the ordinary man to whom they are likewise addressed. Nothing can be great which is not right, Samuel Johnson wrote uh, in The Rambler on the December 24, 1751. Both the death of Socrates and the death of Christ bear in their unfolding a sense of greatness and a sense of rightness that confront the reality of each human being who reflects upon them. In religious environments, the death of Christ will be studied and meditated upon with little reference to Socrates. In academic circles, though, though this practice is difficult to justify in principled uh, intellectual terms, the death of Christ is treated less frequently than uh, the death of Socrates. About the death of Christ will, uh, will hang, uh, for the most part, a kind of ominous silence. Few students will be asked, will be asked to uh, consider its um, uh, circumstances and meaning. They will more often be asked to reflect on Socrates. The origin of this neglect almost invariably lies in politics or in intellectual bias. This academic neglect of the death of Christ as an issue in political philosophy is unfortunate. No full understanding of 
political life can be claimed if either of these deaths, each in their own particular uh, theoretical and historical implications, is neglected. Traditional political reflections, as we know it, originates in these deaths. No two events in human history serve better to confront the question of the uh, limited nature of the state and whether human life is completely defined and absorbed by the political. The accounts of both the deaths of both deaths are easily available. These historical and philosophical narratives form basic poles of our literature. The, they confront issues that help us uh, meet the full implications of the human condition in any era or polity. The next section is called Before the Civil Tri Tribunal. Socrates and Christ were each in their own turn executed by local civil authorities after a public trial. No, no doubt each trial contained uh, minor uh, irregularities that good lawyers of the uh, time might question. Each trial was technically legitimate in its own right. Neither Socrates nor Christ was an anti, uh, was an anarchist who, in principle, um, denied the need uh, for need for and power of civil authority. But their words and actions, by their words and actions, they acknowledge the validity, or at least the inevitability, of the legal uh, processes uh, against them. Both explicitly affirmed the legitimacy of political authority. Socrates was pleased uh, to have been raised by the laws of Athens. Uh, by his answer uh, to those who uh, sought uh, to entrap him, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Um, uh, by saying that, Christ accepted the nature of political authority. Both trials while legally correct, served in their turn to uh, condemn those who, it seems, uh, irresponsibly brought them about and uh, participated in them. Something was radically amiss and um, paradoxical in each trial. Otherwise, we should never have, have heard of them uh, of either trial. The narratives of the trials of Socrates in Plato and of Christ in the Gospels were themselves instruments to uh, rectify uh, the injustices undoubtedly perpetrated by their executions. The legacy of these trials for every uh, subsequent generation, um, the fact that men knew of them and reflected on them served to limit uh, political uh, arbitrariness or aberrations. Books, in other words, can redeem and uh, restore justice and decency 
if not to those judged unfairly, at least uh, to their legacy among those who reflect who reflect upon them. Subsequent legal codes can be formulated uh, to try to prevent abuses found in these classical trials. In the terms of political philosophy, the trial of Socrates is an easier, uh, an easier event with which to deal. Socrates himself claimed a divine uh, vocation, a voice that guided him, that was operative in his trial. The voice's silence indicated that Socrates was to go forth with the uh, legal proceedings in peace. But Socrates did not see himself uh, to be a god, nor did anyone else see him to be a god. Socrates was the philosopher. Plato, uh, through his dialogues, taught every subsequent uh, potential philosopher to experience in his soul the drama of Socrates. He taught uh, students to wonder whether the trial of the philosopher um, had to end the way it did. Was the conflict between philosophy and the city perennial, unavoidable? Would the city always kill the philosopher? But did not the philosopher disrupt the city's peace uh, with his strange questions? The politician had his duty. There were false philosophies, false prophets. Or were all politicians uh, cynical men like Callicles seems to be in the gorgeous? Christ, however, wise, uh, was not a philosopher. Both Plato and Christ taught in, in myths or in stories or in parables in which the most uh, profound of philosophical and religious reflections were hidden. The myths or parables both obscured the truth from the um, dangerous political authorities and enabled the truth to be grasped uh, by the humble or by the wise. Christ, like Socrates, can be treated as a good man. In both cases, a good man was brought to trial uh, because there was a claim for truth involved in his being. In the uh, case of Socrates, a philosopher, or in the case of Christ, the man-god. Many writers and thinkers after Socrates and Christ, Dostoevsky is perhaps the most famous, have suspected that should uh, their lives and uh, trials have been repeated in other times and in other uh, historical polities, the same thing wouldn't have happened uh, to them. The study of the trials of Socrates and Christ is a study in the constancy of human nature. Socrates acknowledged uh, this possibility that his fate would be played out 
anywhere he went. He refused at the trial when uh, offered the chance to accept banishment from Athens, so he refused to go someplace else. He suspected that the same thing would have happened to him uh, in Thebes as in Athens if he had insisted on uh, uh, philosophizing in those cities, in that city. The deaths of Socrates and Christ revealed something disordered in human nature as such, something that required uh, powers greater uh, than politics to heal. The accurate, sober uh, recounting of the deaths of Socrates and Christ is the fundamental exercise that a young potential philosopher must reenact in his own mind and heart if he is to begin and progress in political philosophy as it relates to the highest things. The next section is called The Pate of a Good Man, the Good Man. The Spanish philosopher Salvador de Madariaga wrote that each European student uh, about the time of his graduation from the university should be uh, given two books. One, the Dialogues of the, on the Death of Christ, uh, found in Plato, and the other, Description of the Death of Christ, as found in the New Testament. These books were to be uh, given as testimonials from the ages, sobering gifts to inform those uh, coming of age uh, that their predecessors did know what human nature might do and how it might reflect on its deeds. These young students, potential philosophers all, were to be given these accounts first to remind them of the depths of their own souls, and second, to keep them in touch with the, the central experience of Western, indeed, of universal civilization. In lieu of their actual presence at the trials and deaths of Socrates and Christ, these students were to reflect on the accounts we have of these trials, because men, including themselves, were free. They were not determined to repeat these trials if uh, in every generation, uh, but could very well do so. They could examine the causes that led to these trials in their own souls. Neither Socrates nor Christ wrote a book though the primary way we know of them, of their lives and deaths, is through books that testified uh, to the reality of what they did, taught, and suffered. Both Socrates and in, in his philosophy and Christ in his um, teaching uh, intended to reach not just uh, Athenian Greeks or Jewish or Roman politicians, but all men, but all men. Even those who would not listen, um, uh, they sought or 
uh, conversed with. They claimed a universality that reached to the core of what it is uh, to be human. These experiences and teachings were not uh, products of uh, one civilization. They were the foundation of civilization itself, against which all cultures and cities of all ages and places must be judged and compared. These trials are not isolated incidents uh, of long ago. Both trials and death um, and deaths, together with their um, circumstances, claim the attention of every person. They are the foundation of a universal philosophy and revelation. In the Republic of Plato, we find an unsettling discussion in uh, Book 2 of the fate of the good man who might appear in any existing city. This brief but uh, penetrating insight immediately follows um, the uh, equally disturbing uh, explanation of the Ring of Gyges. This latter story argued the prevailing opinion uh, common to most men that anyone in any society would do evil if he could. The only thing that prevented uh, anyone from doing evil was the fear of uh, detection and law, not one's internal virtue. These young potential philosophers wanted to hear justice praised for its own sake in the Republic. This is why they sought out the philosopher Socrates. The contrasting presentation uh, to the myth of Gyges uh, dealt with the what would happen uh, in any existing state if a really good man uh, suddenly appeared in it. So that's the other part of the story in uh, the Republic in Welcome. In terms of the death of Christ, which took place some 400, four centuries after Socrates, these lines written by Plato and spoken by Glaucon seem almost prophetic. Common opinion everywhere in Glaucon's view estimated that if a good man were to appear in any existing state, most people would expect that the just man who has such a disposition of being actually good will be whipped, he'll be racked, he'll be bound, and he'll have uh, both of his eyes burned out, and at the end, when he has undergone all every sort of evil, he will be crucified and uh, know that one shouldn't uh, wish to be, uh, but to seem to be, just. So that the conclusion would be that you wouldn't want to do this, so therefore you only seem to be. These lines, in some reflective way, have served to connect uh, Socrates and Christ through the events and theories arising out of considerations proper 
to political philosophy. What Glaucon worried uh, about uh, might happen and did happen, uh, did appear to have happened in the case of Christ. Perhaps it is only coincidence, uh, still it is a fertile one in political philosophy, not to be excluded out of, a, out of hand as if uh, the coincidence uh, could not bear fruit. We need not consider Plato to have been a prophet of future events uh, for writing these lines, though many believers uh, from some uh, the fathers of the church to uh, the philosopher Eric Vogelin have suspected something of revelation in the work of Plato. Rather, Plato was possessed of such an acute insight into abiding human nature that he could understand what it might do in extreme circumstances. Evidently, Plato knew already that the response of men to the good, to a good man, or to good acts, would be, not necessarily be, good. Men are not automatically good or bad because of their circumstances, societies, education, or the living examples of those uh, among whom they live. Individual goodness and badness always remained the result of personal choice. Otherwise, the good man who appeared in any state would have uh, called forth only a positive response of change or of uh, change or repentance, which, as Plato foresaw, not it was not necessarily the case. The good could occasion resentment, envy, and hatred by actually being good. A parallel incident in the life of Christ is the case of a man uh, with uh, a withered hand. The Gospel of Mark gives this account uh, in which a certain specific and hostile Pharisee uh, Pharisees were watching uh, Christ to see if he would cure the man on the Sabbath. Quote, uh, so that, and to see if he do this, so that they could bring a charge against him. He said to the man with the withered hand arm, come and stand out here. And then he turned to them and to the Pharisees and said, is it permitted to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath, uh, to save life or kill. They uh, had nothing to say. And looking around at them with anger and sorrow, he then, at their obstinate stupidity, said to the man with the withered hand, stretched out your arm. He stretched it out and his arm was restored. But the Pharisees, on leaving the synagogue, began plotting against him uh, with the uh, partisans of Herod 
to see that they could uh, do away with him. The end of the quote from uh, Mark. These few plotting Pharisees, not all Pharisees, were uh, so uh, hard-hearted, of course, represent something that can exist in human beings. No one questions the fact that the arm uh, was restored or the uh, marvel of it. But the response to something that was unambiguously good was not one of awe or rejoicing as we might uh, have expected. It took the form of a plot to destroy someone who could uh, do such a good deed. Plato's estimate of the fate of a good man in any existing society and the reaction of the witnesses um, uh, to an actual good uh, evidently miraculously miraculous did in the case of Christ uh, uh, seem to correspond. Men could indeed, it seems, choose evil in the very face of the good. Both of these accounts serve to ground a realism that is essential to political philosophy if it is to deal with what actually can happen uh, to the, in human nature and history. If we do not understand uh, that such reactions to good people or deeds are possible, uh, we are not fit to deal with actual human beings in existing cities where such things do occur. The next section is called Before the Hemlock uh, and the Cross. In Aristotle's treatment of how we choose to do evil, we note that some good, however convoluted, is chosen in every evil act. There is some soul of goodness in things evil, we read in Shakespeare. In Shakespeare's Henry V. Would men observingly distill it, um, would men observingly distill it out? In the death of Socrates and in the death of Christ, the people involved in carrying through the deed uh, to its bitter conclusion manifest a kind of reluctance before what they do. Socrates was given every chance to escape his fate. He could have chosen banishment or a small fine or big mercy. The Athenians were annoyed that he forced them to execute him by leaving them no easy way out. They insisted on thinking that he mocked them uh, when he proposed as the proper penalty for his uh, presumed crime free, from, free room and board at the town expense which is what Socrates proposed, because he said he hadn't done anything wrong. In this view, he had, by his philosophy, only benefited the city. 
he saw no reason for punishment of any kind, however mitigated. Pilate, the Roman governor, wanted the crowd to prefer uh, Christ to Barabbas. Pilate wanted to execute a known criminal rather than one he himself and probably most of the others by uh, comparison uh, thought to be innocent. It was almost as if neither Socrates nor Christ really wanted to escape his fate, nor did either want to let uh, the judges and the juries out of their own logic. Certainly neither one, neither uh, would escape if it meant doing something wrong or refusing uh, to do God's will in order to save one's life. Saving one's life at any cost meant that nothing higher than merely keeping alive was of any worth. Neither Socrates nor Christ stood for this position that uh, reduced all worth merely to staying alive. Both stood for the worth and validity of things higher uh, than mere life. Both were courageous in the classic sense, uh, but neither denied the worth of life itself. Socrates did not desire to perish by the hemlock, nor Christ by the cross. Neither one of the responsible Athenian, Roman, or Jewish officials to act uh, in the way that they did force this uh, conclusion. Yet, no one could legitimately treat either Socrates or Christ as a sort of public suicide because of the uh, failure of the mechanisms of escape offered to each. Both would have been uh, content had the judgment in their respective cases gone in their favor. Socrates expressed surprise that he received as many votes uh, uh, for acquittal as he did and felt that he would not have been found guilty had not all three politicians, the poet, the craftsman, and the lawyer, joined in his accusations. Christ hoped that the agony uh, would pass from him, but he realized that he was to drink the chalice the Father gave him. Christ told the disciples to put away the sword, but implied that heavenly forces were available to him, though he did not choose to employ them. The next section is called Responsibility for uh, the Deaths of Christ and, and Socrates. In the examination of the deaths of Christ and Socrates, uh, the first question needing clarification is that of the guilt of those uh, responsible for their deaths. The case of Socrates seems clearer uh, because every member of the jury had to choose uh, for or against uh, Socrates, uh, so they had to choose for or against him. So Socrates 
thought that the particular three who uh, accused him and uh, prosecuted the trial, along with those who voted for his um, uh, condemnation, were guilty. Socrates added in the Crito, however, that this fact did not justify uh, him in not observing the law, the laws of Athens, even when they condemned him to death. Only by obeying the laws of Athens, um, even in accepting execution by Hemlock, could Socrates prove, uh, prove the superiority of philosophy to the city. Philosophy was uh, a daily practice of death, and Socrates taught as he taught. If he did not know whether death was good or bad, but he did know that uh, ceasing to carry out the, his vocation was wrong, then given the choice between death and doing uh, something evil, the philosopher should choose death. Death, as Socrates reflected in the Phaedo, may have brought uh, the finest things out of blessings. In the case of Christ's trial and death, uh, implications of some sort of collective guilt are to be avoided. In human affairs, no such thing as collective guilt exists. All guilt must pass through the knowledge and will of some particular person. Obviously, important individual Romans and Jews of the time were directly responsible for the execution of Christ. Whether he be judged innocent or guilty of the charge against him. We know that their name, we know their names, uh, Pilate, Judas, Annas, Caiaphas, uh, no doubt a few of the uh, uh, Roman soldiers and uh, Sanhedrin members, and at least some in the crowd who called for Christ's death. Some of these latter evidently uh, thought him guilty of violating a religious claim uh, that in local law, uh, rightly or wrongly, carried the death penalty. There were cries uh, from the crowd before Pilate to crucify him. To others, some of the uh, leaders especially, this legal aspect seemed uh, more of a pretext than an honest examination of the uh, man's position. Uh, some simply wanted him out of the way. Pilate bore responsibility for the uh, justice and legality of this trial itself. He did not think Christ was guilty of trying to subvert uh, Roman uh, jurisdiction or authority. When he asked those uh, crowded about the uh, praetorium in the scene with Barabbas uh, whether he should execute this 
their king, they shouted back, we have no king but Caesar. This affirmation was not the real position of most of those present, who in fact did not uh, recognize Caesar as their king. Pilate, for his part, did not present Christ as someone who threatened to undermine Caesar. The almost invincible political and military power in the area was what was Caesar, the power. Pilate found no fault in Christ and no political ambitions. But even should he have had such ambitions, uh, he had no uh, armed forces at his uh, disposal that could be any threat to Rome. Thus Pilate tried to wash his hands of any personal responsibility for what happened. No one who follows uh, these uh, episodes thinks the, this action of Pilate's exempted him from uh, responsibility uh, for their deeds. Joseph Rothinger uh, wrote of Pilate's inner conflict with himself uh, about what to do with Christ. Quote, the truth often makes people uncomfortable. It is probably the strictest of teachers in the process of learning uh, unselfishness and real uh, freedom. Let us take the example of uh, Pilate. He knows for a fact that the accused Jesus is innocent and that according to justice he should acquit him. He even wants to do so. But then his, uh, this truth begins to uh, conflict with his position. It threatens him with inconvenience of uh, even the loss of, uh, of his post. Public disturbances could arise, and he may be made to appear in a, an unfavorable light with Caesar and similar uh, fears, uh, similar fears. And so he uh, prefers to sacrifice the truth, uh, which, which neither cries out nor uh, defends itself, even if it's betrayal leaves behind him, uh, behind in his soul, uh, the dull um, ache of failure, the end of the quote. Pilate, the politician, knew the truth, but the truth conflicted with his position. His position led him to compromise the truth, uh, uh, though one of his duties was to uphold it, for the Romans stood for justice and fairness. Politics and philosophy crossed. Christ was executed by crucifixion, a terrible penalty whose uh, infliction the Romans, for reasons of state, reserved to themselves. Jewish law uh, executed by stoning, as happened 
to St. Stephen in the Acts. Crucifixion was a particularly effective form of deterrence and required the Roman governor's consent to uh, its use in executing criminals dangerous to the Roman power. So uh, that's what he, why he needed it, to, to make it worse for those who were attacking Roman power. The Roman governor was more or less equivalent to a governor of a minor outlying state within the Federal Union. Before this particular crucifixion, which was foreshadowed in Plato, Pilate discussed with Christ the nature of both Christ and his own authority, particularly the authority over life and death, that is, in uh, the hands of the political rulers. The discussion was not uh, over whether capital punishment was morally right or not. Neither Christ, nor Pilate, nor the Jewish leaders, uh, nor Socrates, for that matter, uh, questioned uh, whether uh, capital punishment was legitimate. Uh, it, was the, it was legal, uh, justly tried, and followed a uh, public purpose. Christ affirmed that Pilate had authority. So this is the end of the first part of um, uh, chapter 7. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.